remember we went to one of my interviews and you know you pack the bag and you plan everything out and you're like everything is in this bag I'm ready I'm good to go so I get there and I don't have a lav mic for the interview the one thing you need for audio purposes is a mic and I don't have a lav when my classmate Alana arrived at one of her most important interviews during our time in Panama she realized that she wasn't as prepared as she first thought her stomach dropped she had a camera her questions, and extra lighting equipment. She even had a backup battery, but no lav mic. You've probably seen a lav or lavalier before. They're the small black microphones you usually find clipped to someone's collar during a televised interview or on a reality show. Though tiny, they are of great importance because what good is a video with bad audio? My initial reaction is kind of like, I'm going to cry in panic. I'm absolutely going to cry right here, right now in front of my source. But being in a different country and not necessarily having prepared for that, you kind of have to think on your feet real fast. Before resorting to tears in front of her interviewee, Alana took a moment to go back through her camera bag in a last-ditch effort to find something that would work. And find something she did. Two wireless microphones. I'm automatically like, okay, you know what? I'm going to use these wireless mics and I'm going to act like I've used them before. And I've never used wireless mics before um, just because there was never a need to. But first time for everything, right? And I guess it's right here, right now in Panama when my source is sitting there watching me. I was in the room with Alana for that interview. You would have never known she was internally freaking out because she stayed calm on the outside. Where someone else might have actually broke down, she just chalked it up to practice for the real world. So you kind of have to learn how to maneuver around things on your own, which is sometimes scary, but at the end of the day, I think it's going to make us better journalists. She's right, of course. Everyone who applied for the class knew that there wouldn't be a lot of hand-holding. Or any hand-holding, really. You're expected to act like an adult, and for the most part, you're treated like one. If there's a problem, you handle it to the best of your ability before asking for help. Unfortunately, things aren't always that simple. Alana would only be one of several people in our class to run into unimaginable difficulties, primarily having to do with imperfect interviews, missing sources, and poor health. For some people, it would be all three. Hola, Kiara Powell here, your guide to Padma. At its most base level, this class trip to Panama was going to be an adventure no matter what, because none of us had ever been there before. We all had one simple but huge requirement to fill, cover a compelling story. The fact that we had limited time in the country only upped the ante. As you've heard in the last few episodes, our class was up for the challenge. However, despite all of the arrangements and planning ahead that we thought we did, there are some things you can't prepare for, like an allergic reaction to a medicine meant to protect you from malaria. So a bunch of us were on Malarone, and it's an anti-malaria antibiotic. That's my classmate, Michelle Wolf. She's one of the people who got to have dinner at Dr. Larson's apartment. You're supposed to get every 24 hours. I took it twice, and I think it was the first full day we were here on Saturday. I was out in the sun at the pool with everybody else. We already know nothing good happens at the hotel pool. I started breaking out in hives all over my body, and as the night went on, it got significantly worse. In horror, Michelle told our professors what happened, and they called the doctor to the hotel. And the doctor came and was like, oh yeah, you're having an allergic reaction, you're going to have this for like a week. The exact length of our stay in Panama, mind you. I was 
really worried because this is my first time outside of the United States. So the fact that I had an allergic reaction, I was like, oh my God, I'm in a foreign country. What am I going to do? Part of Michelle's fear stemmed from the fact that she had suffered through a similar situation before. I am highly allergic to a different type of antibiotic, and I was on steroids for a month because of it. So I was hoping that it wasn't going to be something that serious, which it hasn't been, which is nice. After a couple of rounds of what she called really strong Benadryl, Michelle was fine. And by the end of the week, the hives had started to disappear. She was in the clear. Some might say that her whole plight was for naught, as some students had stopped taking Malarone halfway through the trip anyway, because we hadn't seen a mosquito once. In fact, when we were outside of the Biodiversity Museum with Alfonso, our fixer, he told us how mosquitoes aren't really a problem in Panama anymore, since they were mostly eradicated when the U.S. was building the Panama Canal. But there were definitely still other ways to get sick. For example, we were advised to drink only bottled water and to avoid tap water because it could lead to traveler's diarrhea or worse. In addition, if you'll recall, our class visitor from risk management earlier in the semester had told us to eat only fruit with a thick skin, such as bananas, that would be well protected from any contaminants. Even with these precautions, I still found myself sick on the trip. From the second full day there, I had a cough that would not go away. It was so loud and rough, it sounded like I had bronchitis, and it only seemed to get worse as the week went along. Perfect for conducting interviews and following people around, right? However, despite the cough, I had no other symptoms so I decided to take some vitamin C tablets and try to move on. Some of my other classmates weren't so lucky. Like Paige Woiner, who showed up to breakfast one morning looking gray in the face and completely unwell. Later on, two doctors that were called to her hotel room would try to administer her an IV right then and there. She refused it, of course, but talk about scary. Not to mention what happened to our other classmate, Alana, who upon visiting Barrow, Colorado Island, or BCI, for her biodiversity story, came back with more than just footage of jungle wildlife. So going to BCI, I knew that there was kind of a risk of getting some sort of sickness or infectious disease. I don't know. It's Panama. So, you know, there's always that opportunity for you to kind of get sick when you're in a different country, especially since your body isn't necessarily adapted to it. So I go to BCI and I'm like, okay, I know that there are ticks. Let me make sure I use the off spray and spray it all over so I could kind of limit my chances of getting them. Alana's guide on the island, Sonia, was not shy with her own can of bug spray. Well, I've only ever really needed to spray off on like my wrist a little bit. But I mean, she she showered in off spray basically is what happened. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, th- this is serious. So <laughs> I start spraying myself all over. I mean, I spray like eight coats on my body overall, like three on my hair. Here and now, this is the precautionary measures that I need to take. Alana said she did everything she was supposed to do, including wearing a hat and long sleeves, even going as far as tucking her pants into her socks to avoid any interactions with ticks. And after her tour of the jungle was all over, it seemed as if she had accomplished just that. I get back to the hotel and I check myself and I'm like, okay, great, I don't have any ticks on me. This was a successful journey. But I wake up in the morning and I go to shower. (laughs) And as I'm showering, I feel something on me and I'm like, oh, what's this? And I'm like scrubbing real hard and it is not coming off. And I look real close. I'm like, this is a tick. This is a tick. Cue the chaos. 
I automatically start freaking out because I do not like insects. I'm from Long Island. I mean, the, the most I usually see are ants and I get scared of ants, okay? I don't like ants. So I have this tick on me and I'm like, oh God, I don't know what to do. I start screaming. Usually a valid idea when you need help in a hurry, but not this time. My roommate must be dead when she sleeps because I screamed so loud. I thought I woke up the entire floor of the hotel, but no one wakes up and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to have to get this tick off of me. So what was her plan of attack exactly? I've never experienced this before, so I'm sure there's a way that you're supposed to take ticks off. But at this point, I'm terrified. I want it off me. And I'm like, screwed. I'm just going to use my nails. That's definitely not the right way to go about removing a tick. Also, if you're squeamish, you might want to plug your ears for a few seconds. So I dig into my skin with both my nails, and I'm like digging it out, and I get it out, and I just flick it off. And I, I, I don't know where it goes, and I'm just like, okay. Again, not the right way to go about disposing of a tick either. So I get out the shower, don't know where that tick went, and just pray that it wouldn't get embedded on someone else. <laughs> Did it hurt so, to take it out? It didn't hurt to take out because it wasn't that deep into my skin yet, but it was more, wow, I really have ticks on me. The one thing that I took all these precautionary measures to ensure that I didn't get any ticks on me, I'd be the one to get ticks on me, naturally. When she says ticks, plural, she really means it. While Alana didn't know it at the time, she would find out later her original tick had brought friends along. I come back to the States and I find two more on my legs. Many people know to avoid ticks, but if you're at all familiar with ticks in the northeastern U.S., including Pennsylvania, where we go to school, you'll understand part of why Alana was so scared. There are different types of ticks that spread different types of diseases, but where we're from, the main concern is Lyme disease. According to the CDC, symptoms of Lyme disease include skin rashes, fever, headaches, and fatigue. If untreated, the infection can spread to someone's joints, heart, and nervous system. Now, not all ticks carry diseases, but either way, the idea is to be safe rather than sorry and remove them as quickly as possible. So, with all of this in mind, I asked Alana if she went to the doctor when we got back to school to make sure she was in the clear with everything. Turns out, she had more to deal with than just ticks. I went to University Health Services because on my last day in Panama, I got extremely sick. So I get really sick on the plane ride, and I'm sitting next to two students from the course, and they think I'm dying. <laughs> because I'm really not looking well, I'm burning up. I mean, my temperature was so high that my glasses were fogging up. I give them props for sitting with me because to be quite honest, I, me, the germaphobe I am, I probably would have been like, I, I need to change seats. I can't sit next to this infected being. I'm not doing it. But they were really nice to me. But I came back and I went to University Health Services just to make sure that I'm okay. The verdict? They said that I got a flu. How did I get this flu? Ah, uh, the world may never know because I don't know. It took a while to recover from that. It was something I've never experienced before. When I've gotten the flu, it's never affected me the way that it did when I got it in Panama. Alana said she looked so bad on the plane that she was stopped twice. Once by Tony, who asked her if she needed to go to the hospital. She said no because she didn't want to be that girl on the school trip. And the other time by customs when we landed in America. They wanted to know if she had come back to the States with any illnesses, but she waved them off, telling them she was fine. When I followed up with her a few weeks later, she told me that she hadn't caught any diseases from the ticks, which was great. As for the flu, 
Apparently, it may not have been a flu at all. Her doctor told her he couldn't really diagnose her because he wasn't exactly sure what she had. They just called it the flu for convenience. At any rate, she was totally fine and no worse for wear. Interestingly enough, some might say that Tony foreshadowed what would happen. In an email exchange between himself, BCI, and Alana about her story earlier in the semester, Tony had typed one important phrase. I remember he responded to me immediately and said, Good luck, Long Island girl. I, I remember those words verbatim. He's like, monkeys, spiders, you're going to have trouble when you get there, aren't you? Obviously, he was right. But Alana said she's just glad it didn't happen at the beginning of the trip. That really probably would have impeded the way I could have done my story in terms of going to BCI and trekking through the rainforest. You kind of have to be healthy for that. So I was really lucky that I got sick towards the end, if you can say getting sick is lucky. <laughs> but I guess the time frame was nice. Because he isn't a doctor, we obviously couldn't go to our fixer, Alfonso, with our medical issues while in Panama. But anything about our stories was under his area of expertise. For the most part, we would ask Alfonso for help in finding appropriate sources. He would then find someone, give us their contact information, and an interview would be set up. After the interview, he might ask how it went, there'd be a small conversation about it, and that would be that. Some people's experiences were a little more complicated. Even a fixer can't be expected to fix everything. But Alfonso really did. For instance, Carter, who's going to do a story about Barro Blanco. Barro Blanco is a hydroelectric dam project in Panama that flooded the homes of several indigenous families earlier this year. La Prensa, the main newspaper in Panama, says the dam is a source of conflict between the government and some indigenous people in the country. I basically spent an entire day setting up a tour for him to go to... Which is a field where the indigenous people in Panama gather. But on Sunday, there was a car crash and about 20 of these people died. So they canceled. So basically that story went out the window. What happened was a tragedy in its own right. But because it had happened so early in the week, Alfonso and Carter had time to work together to find another story for him to pursue before we returned to America. Our classmate Kayla would not be as fortunate. My main interview was with a man named Roberto Eisenman. He founded the newspaper La Prensa. So this man is a very influential man. He's very well regarded in Panama. He has a lot of buildings named after him. Like, people know who this man is. Kayla's story was supposed to be a feature piece on Eisenman. Her hope was to sit down with him for an interview and have him tell her the history of the press and journalism in Panama and his experiences as a main figure in that narrative. When I got there, he had to reschedule our interview. We were originally going to have it on Tuesday, and I think we pushed it back to Thursday because he wasn't feeling well or something happened. So I said, okay, that's fine, because, I mean, this man is my story. At this point, Kayla was still feeling relatively calm. Moving the interview to Thursday was a minor setback and no reason to be worried. But then... Thursday morning, I get a message that basically says he's in the hospital and something's wrong and he might be better by tomorrow but we're not doing the interview on Thursday. Meanwhile we leave Saturday so 
I'm kind of freaking out at that point because I was like, all right, we, this man is my story. And it's really late in the week now. What am I going to do if I don't get this man's interview? So she calls Eisenman. After checking up on his well-being, she gets to the million-dollar question. Would they be able to make the interview happen before we left on Saturday? He said he would not be out of the hospital until Monday. With less than three full days left in the country, Kayla had to figure something else out. Fast. Well, basically, I mean, I told Tony, and I was like, well, you remember how my story is going to be about this man? Well, it can't be. I was like, we need a plan B. And he was like, okay, do you have other interviews? As it turns out, she did. Two, to be exact. But Kayla didn't feel it would be enough. I was like, well, I need more interviews because I don't really know what path my story's going to go on. So I reached out to Alfonso and asked if he could give me contacts, like, of someone in the government or someone else who works for the newspaper, someone else who would know something about that time that could give me almost the same description of what I wanted to learn from Eisenman, but just a less personal description. So I told Tony that I was going to try to find someone else to talk to. Kayla said that Alfonso and one of his friends slash contacts, Hugo, both turned out to be a huge help in finding other sources for her story. We had all met Hugo at our group dinner with local journalists earlier in the week, so it was a bit like seeing things come full circle, which was nice. All of that aside, you might be wondering what happened with Eisenman. I ended up actually being able to talk with him on the phone. I did a phone interview with him while I was back in the United States. He gave one of the best interviews, I think, as a journalist I've ever had. And I was like, wow, this is really great, except it's on the phone. And when you're doing a broadcast piece and you only have audio, you don't have anything to show for it. So that's kind of like a barrier. In a perfect world, you don't want to have. While we were in Panama, Kayla ended up getting a lot of B-roll to put on screen in conjunction with her Eisenman interview. Much of it was of the printing presses at La Prensa and another Panamanian newspaper, La Estrella, as Kayla had taken tours of both facilities. So I got tons of B-roll of, like, papers being printed, everything, like, from where the paper comes from to it being packaged and shipped out. So that was great. And I also had B-roll of archived photos from La Prensa. So, like, what Eisenman talked about in a lot of his interview. It seemed that her story would be saved after all, and it would only cost her a few gray hairs. Everything worked out, but when I was there, like, talk about stress. I'm really sad that, like... I've traveled all the way to Panama to meet this man, and I didn't, in person anyway. But it all worked out somehow. Somehow it all worked out. So far, you've heard about four different people in my class who had pretty terrible things happen either to them or to their stories on our trip. Now. Picture yourself in any of their shoes. It might be hard to choose at first, but eventually, I think you'd be able to map it out and pick your poison. None of the things that happened to them were desirable, but, as you heard, nothing was totally earth-shattering either. If you think about it like a roller coaster ride, most of my classmates that I've already mentioned in this episode had to deal with one or two big drops. Their problems were huge, but few in number. However, there's one more member of our class who you could say spent the week on a never-ending loop-de-loop. Her name is Gabby, and you met her and her pool waterlogged phone last episode. As it turns out, her bad luck didn't start there. At the airport Friday morning, before we ever left America, 
she would find herself surrounded by four TSA agents. The problem? The brand new bottle of body spray she had put in her backpack instead of her checked luggage earlier that morning. Its short life came to a close in an airport trash can. The next day, as you know, she had a distressing experience at the hotel pool. We're all familiar with how that ended. On Sunday evening, the night of our dinner with local journalists, Gabby and her roommate Alana were enjoying a nap in their hotel room when Gabby woke up in a panic. The reason? We were meeting in the lobby to walk over to the restaurant at 6.45. When she looked at the clock, it read 6.38. When you can go from sweaty tourist to smartly dressed young journalist ready to network in less than 10 minutes, that's a skill. Now you might be thinking, those are all little things, annoyances at best. To that, I say, dropping your phone in a pool seems like a big deal, but I get the sentiment. Either way, Gabby's real trouble started that Monday. Her broadcast story in Panama was about a group that works to rehabilitate former gang members back into positive roles within their communities. She was excited for her first interview with them. I was going to go on a tour with two former gang members who give you a tour of their old city and just take you around all the bad parts and show you like why they wanted to change. And I was like really interested in that. I really wanted to do it. The guy told me it was... $25 per person, so we only had $50 in cash. Just enough money for Gabby and our other classmate, Emily Coleman, who went with her that day to help film. So they also told me that they had an interpreter, so I didn't bring one with me. And I got there, and it was just one guy sitting at, like, the bar wearing the logo shirt. And I went up to him, and he didn't understand a word that I was saying. That's when he realized they would need the interpreter after all. They wound up saying, because I was using the camera, which I told them about before, and their interpreter, that it was going to be $50 per person. So we had to scrounge around, and we finally found the $100. So, a rough start. But at least they were finally getting to the tour. Smooth sailing from there on out, right? Wrong. During the tour, the guy was hitting on me the entire time on camera, and I was so uncomfortable... And then at the end, he was like, oh, is this microphone off so I can hit on you some more? Gabby told him the microphone was off, but she actually left it on to catch anything else creepy he might say. She said later on when she watched the footage back, she found that it was a bust and thought she had lost her story. To complicate matters, when she had spoken to the CEO of the group she was covering earlier in the semester, he didn't want her to interview anyone but him about their operation. However. The week that we were in Panama, he knew he'd be out of the country, so he gave her permission to interview the former gang members. When that obviously didn't go well, Gabby wasn't sure where to turn. When on Tuesday, Alfonso's never-ending list of connections made an appearance again, this time in the form of a family member. Our fixer wound up setting me up with his aunt who works for the company, and I reached out to her. And at first, she was, like, fine with it. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, perfect. I'll be able to go to their office. Like, I'll have this great interview. And she called me back, and she's like, yeah, I actually talked to the CEO, and he decided that we're really busy. Gabby found that to be super bizarre. But before she could fully try to understand what was happening, she got a message from the CEO himself. He emailed me this long, nasty thing, like, you're trying to circumvent my leadership and, like, go behind my back and all this stuff. 
I think it's just because you're a student journalist and you don't know what you're doing and you're selfish. And I was like, oh my God, none of that is true. She thought for the second, but certainly not the last time, that she had lost her story again. But there was still a speckle of hope in the form of another interview later that day. I found another guy and he's like, oh yeah, we can definitely talk for like two hours. Gabby was feeling much better about the whole thing but then found out that someone else in the class needed to interview the same person for their story during the same time slot. At first, it was fine, as she thought the two of them could split the time down the middle, an hour each. But that's not what happened. They wound up talking for like an hour and 45 minutes out of the two hours that we had him. And I had already set up this beautiful shot on the roof for my interview. It would have looked great. She only had 15 minutes, but was willing to try and make it work. And then he came up to the roof, and he was on the phone for 20 minutes, and then he's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I have to go. And that was, like, my last hope for the story. So then I cried Tuesday night. To backtrack a bit, in January, when everyone was looking at initial story ideas, Gabby came across information about the gang member reform program. She said she was pumped about it, and communication back and forth between her and the CEO was good, until it wasn't all of a sudden. She spoke to Alfonso, and he told her about another story idea, involving the first female engineer to work on the Panama Canal. Gabby was super excited and decided to pursue that instead, until she found out that the engineer wouldn't be available to participate during our class's time frame, as she'd be out of the country. When Alfonso learned this, he gave Gabby yet another idea, telling her that he could put her in touch with the captain who took the first ship through the new set of canal locks that had opened in June of 2016. Like before, she was interested and asked for the man's contact information. However, at the same time, the CEO of the gang program began responding to her emails again, and Gabby said she forgot all about the canal story. It seemed for a while as if Alfonso had forgotten too, and they both moved on. Now, back to the present. So then I went to Costco Viejo Wednesday, to try to like salvage the gang story and I was getting some leads and I had an interview for Thursday morning set up so I was like getting pumped about that again and then Alfonso texted in our group and was like hey guys I have an interview with this ship captain at nine o'clock tonight who was this for yep it was for Gabby and I was just like oh god I can't not go to this interview because he went through all this trouble but I totally forgot about it so then I begged Dara to come with me, and we went to his house, and we were there for, like, two hours. And when me and Dara left, we were on, like, an adrenaline high because the interview was, like, so good. Gabby was excited about the footage, but with her impending gang story interview on Thursday morning, she figured she would fully commit to that, despite earlier setbacks, as opposed to starting an entirely new project. The next morning, it would become abundantly clear the universe had something else planned. We are supposed to meet with, like, three different people Thursday morning, And then that morning, only one guy showed up. Thank God, he actually did. And then the other two just never answered my interpreter. That's when I finally cut the cord. I was like, all right, this story is not a story anymore. Gabby said she was super bummed that the story didn't work out because she put so much effort into it and had been excited to see it come to life. Instead of lamenting over it, though, she decided to put that energy into turning her one really good interview from the night before into a full-fledged story she could be proud of. Originally, she thought of doing a feature piece sort of like Kayla's story on Eisenman, except she would only have the ship captain's voice to use. And then I was like, I can't come here and only interview one person. Like, that's such a cop-out, unintentional cop-out. But 
I asked Alfonso if he could try to get somebody else because he he mentioned like oh I might be able to get you like a tugboat captain or something, and I was like I know this is the last minute but can you help me? And he's like yeah sure, but then he never answered. Not one to sit around waiting for answers. Friday morning, Gabby decided to go to the canal to record some B-roll and her on-camera piece for her story. This is where things started to look up in the most surprising way. There was just like a big class and the teacher was joking and she's like, oh, are you going to interview my students? And I was just like, I don't really have time for this, but yeah, sure. As luck would have it, one of the girls in the class told Gabby that her father works as a ship captain in the canal and had been there the day the new locks opened. So I wound up interviewing her and then had her like take me through the big celebration in June. And then I was like, um, so can you ask your dad if I can interview him? He ended up saying yes. And just like that, Gabby was on her way to having a complete story. It was an international reporting miracle. Once again, she got Dara to go with her for the interview. We went to their house Friday night, our last night there. So I was like, uh, I don't really want to do this, but I know I have to. So we went to their house at like 8.30 or 9 for that interview. If you're worried about how they spent their last night in Panama, have no fear. They were able to meet us all out in Casco Viejo later that evening for one last hurrah. Gabby said that if it wasn't for the original Wednesday night interview Alfonso had set up for her, she doesn't know what she would have done otherwise. She's fortunate that it all came together, but admits she still thinks about the gang story she'd spent months researching. I still am like resenting and just like, mad that I couldn't do that story but I mean the story that I got I think it'll be good and I'm like excited to see what it turns out to be and I might try doing more of like a print story on the gang thing I don't want to just waste it if I had to use one word to describe Gabby's week it would definitely be tumultuous you might think that her being able to turn her story around would be the be-all end-all of her Panamanian troubles but alas you'd be wrong At our last mandatory 8 a.m. class breakfast in Panama, Tony reminded us of several things, one of which was the importance of picking up souvenirs before we left, whether for ourselves, our family members, or both. Feeling good after finally conquering a story, Gabby took Tony's advice and set out to pick up something for herself. This just literally was like the epitome of this trip, I feel like. All I was trying to do was shop for a necklace, and I'm standing there holding the thing, and that's when she felt it. And it felt so disgusting. And I looked down, and I got pooped on by a bird. Heard it's good luck, but I do not believe that because <laughs> after everything else that happened. And the lady who, like, owned the little shop didn't speak any English. And I'm, like, standing there freaking out. And she's just cracking up at me. And she she just took the necklace and, like, wiped it off with this cloth and then put it back out for sale. And I was like, that's disgusting. I'm not buying that. Disgusted, but ultimately still determined to find a souvenir, Gabby moved on to search for a different type of jewelry. I kept seeing these really pretty bracelets, and our interpreter had just like a plain red one, and they looked really stretchy. Stretchy. As in, easy to take on and off. And I saw them like on those like jewelry tube things. I asked her how much it was, and she said five bucks. Gabby couldn't pass up a bargain that good. She takes it off the thing, and it's just one long string of all these beads. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know how she's going to put this on me. The woman took Gabby's wrist and started wrapping the string around quickly and tightly. She didn't speak any English. I don't speak any Spanish, really, so I couldn't be like, oh, JK, I don't want this bracelet anymore. The woman continued to tie the bracelet, and when she was done, 
Gabby had about eight or so rows of small beads on her wrist. As you can probably guess, it wasn't stretchy and it wasn't coming off. She was stuck with the bracelet. Like, I don't think I could take this bracelet off and put it back on. I think it's just stuck forever unless I cut it off. With my luck, I was saying it was probably going to break in the airport security and the beads were going to go flying everywhere and people would be tripping all over the place. That's how that trip was going. In the end, there was no commotion at the airport and Gabby arrived back in America, bracelet intact. When I asked her about it later, she told me that she ended up taking it off about a month after the trip, in mid-April, because she was going to be in a dance performance and couldn't wear it on stage. In the end, she was able to unravel it herself without resorting to scissors. You can make of that what you will. Would you say that it was a bad week, or would you say that it was a good week somewhere in the middle? I'd say that it was a good week minus two days, Tuesday and Saturday, a.k.a. the first day that we were there. So all in all, a score of five out of seven. Not bad. Our class spent the last few hours of our week in Panama at the airport. When it came time to check our luggage, some people were still shifting their items from bag to bag, trying to meet weight requirements. Others were lamenting the fact that they still had to lug around the huge JVC cameras along with their other carry-ons for the plane. Nevertheless, our entire group made it through airport security without a problem, and people dispersed at the gate to buy snacks and drinks for the flight. But because we couldn't leave without one more obstacle, while half the class was missing from the gate and the other half watched their stuff, Airport employees arrived to set up yet another security checkpoint. It was just as odd as it sounds. We were all shooed out of our seats and told to form a line, as we watched the employees arrange a scanner to examine our carry-ons and a metal detector for each of us to walk through. This mini-checkpoint followed the same rules as the original one we had already gone through. No shoes, no metal on your person, and no liquids over three ounces. So everyone who had just purchased a drink in the airport was forced to throw it out. I'm sure you can imagine how mad they all were. Later, after being checked again, we were finally sitting on our plane on the runway, looking out at our very last collective Panamanian sunset. It was a special moment. Having scored a window seat on the plane, I remember taking a picture of the palm trees surrounding the airport and thinking that in spite of the small and large setbacks a number of us had faced, our week had actually been really awesome and extremely successful. I like to think that everyone else was having similar thoughts. Or at least maybe they were. Until 20 minutes into the flight, when we all heard Carter curse to himself. Why? Well, it took him that long to realize he had left the keys to his car and apartment in the hotel safe. So maybe label that the last official headache of the trip. Please ensure that your seatbelt is securely fastened and your seat back and tray table are in the upright position. O comandante acendeu o sinal de apertar os cintos. So that's it for our week in Panama. But this story isn't over yet. Back in State College, there was still so much work to be done, figuring out how to turn all the raw information we'd collected into stories worth reading or looking at. But first, we had to readjust ourselves to the environment. I cried. 
because I could not feel my hands, and I was carrying my duty-free box and my <laughs> camera and my suitcase. I had to stop three times on my way home to put all my things down and put my hands in my pockets and just sit there. And I literally cried because I was like, I love the cold. I really do. But my hands hurt. In that moment, Kayla was all of us. With a 69-degree difference between Panama and Penn State, it certainly wouldn't be easy to bounce back, but that didn't matter. Spring break was over. It was time to get to work. Find out how we wrapped up our semester of international reporting next time on Potama.